You're listening to In Network, Nordic's podcast series where we explore healthcare and technology with experts from around the globe. Hello, and welcome to the In Network podcast feature, Designing for Health. I'm Nordic's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Craig Joseph. I recently sat down with Billy Nikolich, Healthcare Product Manager at Presgany. Billy shares his background in healthcare and experience design, the legacy and impact of nudge units, and why he sees history as being divided into pre-manifesto and post-manifesto. Exciting and revolutionary, right? We also discussed the scientific study of stupidity, how bad decisions create real pain points for users, and in what ways human-centered design can remediate some of that pain and stupidity. Let's plug in. Welcome to the pod, Billy Nikolich. How are you, sir? Doing great. Happy to be here, Craig. It's uh, it's an honor and a privilege. You and I met at a conference, and we're going to get into that a little bit more. But uh, um, as I recall, uh, you saw that I had a book uh, that I had written, and um, you pulled it out of my hand, and you ran away. And then I saw you the next day at the at the same conference, and um, I told the police I did not want to press charges. Um, and so uh, are you going to deny that, or are you going to go with that? No, I love it. I still have it. I was honored to get a copy of this, uh, extremely honored. And, and then I found out that you were leaving it on the airplane and in truck stop bathroom stalls just everywhere. Then it started feeling a little less that way, but I, I still loved it. By the way, I love designing for health, the human-centered approach. That's what immediately gripped me was the title. And I, I just thought to myself, absolutely, before I ever read it, we need a book like this. And I know we're not here to promote the book, but I'm just saying it immediately gripped me. And in fact, it, it, it's a true story. When I went back to the hotel, it wasn't actually a hotel. I was on the cheap. It was an Airbnb place. But I read it, like not word for word. But I, I read through it and immediately uh, enjoyed some of the content. Maybe we could talk about some of that. Yeah, that's that's great. I have yet to read it, uh, but I am told it is good. and. Um, I'm not going to argue with you about the airplane seats and the uh, truck stop bathrooms. Those are good places to find free copies of books about uh, design and healthcare. I think we all agree on that. Uh, so let's start talking about your background. You have an odd sort of a, a background. Um, you went to college and you said, I, I love technology. I want to major in computer science. Is that, is that what happened? I'm pretty sure I got that wrong. Yeah, that's totally not it. And you know what? My background makes no sense unless you treat it like an onion and start out with the outer layers. Oh, and honestly, we could just start with, okay, I showed up at this highly specialized conference. You were there. I, you know, I was there. And in fact, the two of us showed up to a pre-conference session. Now you have to have some dedication to even go to that, right? So this was before it even started. We go to this session. It was on clinical decision support. It was very interesting. And, and how did I end up there? Now, I, I do have to admit that there, there was a lot of people because this is pen medicine and, and there was pens, you know, nudge unit people, there was, there was researchers. I do have a pen affiliation and the reason is because I'm, I am an alumni of a master's degree program from Penn called the Master of Healthcare Innovation. So it wasn't like I had zero, you know, exposure to, to Penn and, and what the nudge unit there has to do. I, I actually did because I, I'm an alumni of Penn. And the reason I'm an alumni of Penn is because right before the pandemic started, I found that they had a program for people similar to me, which is 
you're in the healthcare industry. Now, you don't necessarily have to be a clinician, in my case, healthcare IT. In fact, I had spent several years at Athena Health. That's one of the you know, well-known you know, health companies. So I'm in healthcare IT, and this program was meant not for coming right out of a four-year degree, but mid-career professionals in healthcare. So you have a sense for, wow, the U.S. healthcare system has a lot of problems, right? It's, it's kind of twice as expensive as our peer countries, and yet our outcomes sometimes are even worse, right? So it was designed for mid-career professionals, and you could do it online. And in fact, it was uh, University of Pennsylvania's first fully online program. And I, I thought that I had a magic wand and I had designed the program of my dreams. And one of the things that really gripped me about the program was actually Kevin Volt, who is one of the luminaries that spoke at the conference. And uh, as maybe we can discuss, he's one of the most prolific researchers in this area of applying behavior science in the healthcare domain. And I signed up to be in the program partially and largely in part because I could be a student of Kevin Volpe and I, I went to his lectures and, and so I was familiar with some of that work. So it's, it's best to understand my trajectory starting there. And then you, you find that, yeah, undergraduate, I, I did economics and behavior, you know, behavioral science type stuff. And, and so I, I had known about, uh, you know, some of the work, earlier works of Daniel Kahneman and, and you know, some of these researchers in, in the past. So I wasn't a completely random person off the street shows up at this conference. I, I had a little bit of a, you know, some reasons to be there. But, you know, I wasn't one of the people who got to go there for free because I was, you know, working for Penn. It's not like that. I, I had skin in the game. Fair enough. Fair enough. So let's, so, so let's rush right into this. This, um, this was the, uh, there's a nudge, it's called the nudge unit at the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah. And um, as far as I'm aware, a nudge is like a push, uh, but not an aggressive push, a slight push. And um, this was the first uh, university that I'm aware of that that had such a unit, and and they put on uh, this conference. Now, this was the first time I ever attended the conference. I know that you've been there before. How did this conference differ from previous nudge conferences? Yeah, and in fact, I was at the very first one. This is 2018, and at the time, I was, again, a student, uh, Penn Medicine, that was in this master's degree program, and and this is the, the first time in 2018 they have the conference. And at that conference, uh, you could say kind of uh, version one of this, this symposium was that first conference, and I would say the... Uh, you know, one of the main messages is, uh, and you are right, at least partially right, about how Penn Medicine uh, was had the first, in, you know, nudge unit embedded within a health system. That was that was the thing that they had done the first, and they said, "Hey, we've we've done this, and now we want to share what we've learned so that other health systems can have nudge units and and do this too." And so they, uh, you know, very interesting. If you saw a map dotted all over the country health systems, uh, you know, went to this conference to figure out, hey, how can we have a nudge unit in our health system, which would be a group of people who have these behavior science backgrounds who can then go find those nudges that you were mentioning. Uh, and, and the hope is that 
you could find a way to have a, a small tweak to something that had could have a, a really massive positive impact. One of the big examples, Penn Medicine changed uh, a drop down in their EMR for what uh, drugs to prescribe, and they just changed the order. They just changed the order so that at the top, rather than spread around or at the bottom, would be the uh, generic, uh, less expensive drugs. And they found that as they tracked, you know, the usage or the, you know that which which ones the doctors were selecting, that overnight they started selecting less expensive drugs, and it had over the course of a year, you know, a couple million dollars of savings. And they found that that it was persistent. And also, they also found that doctors, when the drug that they were prescribing was, let's say, not bios exact with the generic, that they were in fact going in and you know adjusting for that. So they were doing all the right things, but there was all this money being saved. So it was, a, it was just a, a, an amazing example of, of one of these nudges you're talking about and how you can go into a health system and just start finding these opportunities. I, I, you know, I love two things about what you said. The, the first is that I was partially right <laughs> about the, the origin of the, of the Nudge Conference, which is, and I think our listeners will know, um, unusual because usually I'm, I'm completely wrong. And so to be partially right, it's like a, it's a big win for me. The second thing that, uh, that uh, I liked um, was that how successful they were with these tiny little changes. And, and I think that's really what, a, what the nudge is supposed to be, right? You're like, hey, we're not taking away your opportunity to, to choose uh, these three medications, A, B, and C, but we think B is really the, the best one according to our experts. And so we're going to put B at the top. And we know that a lot of times you're just going to choose whatever you see first. And, um, but if you really wanted uh, A or C, they're still right there, you know, not too far away from you. And, and especially when you have a, an expensive electronic uh, medical record, you're able to make these uh, little tweaks uh, at, at, when we do them all the time, but we don't normally, I, sh I should say we, many of us don't normally study when we make those little changes. We, we make one either uh, accidentally or purposefully and, um, you know, and we, and we hope for the best. So that was, as you called it, or as you like to say, version one. That was version one. That was the year one. And now we were in our fifth year. And, and what you and I saw, Greg, was version three. So what was version two? I'll just cover that real quick. So please. Version two was, hey, we have this, we have a good thing going here and it's gaining a lot of traction. You know, nudge units, th this is an, an amazing idea. People are, are finding that this is doing great things in their health systems. But what we're going to do is evolve it a little bit. And, and we're going to marry it up to uh, the researchers who try to get all the good ideas that, that researchers distill when it comes to finding new treatments. And, you know, sometimes it takes 10 years or, or even longer for that to become the, the common practice. Let's, let's get those researchers in on this and maybe they can use, you know, nudge principles to cut that time in half or, or even more. And so it, phase two was getting those people in the room and, and evolving in a little bit, which I think was really cool. Now, there was no in-person there because that, that's when you know, the pandemic hit. So that was version two. And version three, and I guess one of the exciting things why, why we, you know, it's worth having this conversation is that it's what I would call post-manifesto. We're going to have to talk about that manifesto, but it was the post-manifesto conference 
that applied really all of the manifesto uh, insights. And, and really, there's a line in the sand of history. You know, there's, there's pre-manifesto and now there's post-manifesto. And really, I would say if, if, I were, if you were to ask me, Bill, just, just what's the punchline? Let's give our listeners, you know, the punchline of what is, what is the manifesto. We'll get into the details, but, but here's what comes to mind, okay? First of all, this stuff is not just hype. I know behavior science has really rocketed. And you could say it, it started gaining a lot of attention when Richard Thaler, Cass Sunstein had their nudge book back in 2008. Then they had strong friends, one of them being Barack Obama. Barack Obama, he issued an executive order to have his own nudge unit in his uh, executive order uh, to work in government. Uh, The UK did something very similar. And Richard Thayer, Cass Sunstein were uh, integral to, you know, influencing the right people to, to have that happen. But, but is there this sort of hype bubble going on? People are so, so excited, right? But I think what we found in this manifesto is that it's not just hype, that the behavior science is now listening to the skeptics and the critics and has learned from them so that it's, it's not just people in a vacuum who got excited about an idea. It's learning and listening to the skeptics and critics and making sure it's not just hype, but it's something that can go from the lab to the field and we can take advantage of it. In fact, I'll tell you, Craig, the minute I got home, I was able to apply some of the stuff that we talked about in, in our pre-conference directly to the work that I do and implemented it immediately and, it, and it, it led to good things. And we could talk about that also in a minute. So the other thing is there's a clearer direction. You know how we talk about how whether it be a health system, a hospital, uh, any, any kind of organization in healthcare, what you want is a learning organization that is an organization that knows how to have feedback loops to to do uh, continuous improvement, to continue to do better so that it's serving the people they're meant to serve even better, whether that be the people they're trying to serve are patients or you know, you're trying to serve a health plan member, whatever it may be, right? So there's a clearer direction. What you wanna do is, is be a learning organization that has uh, behavioral science, uh, the behavior science lens applied to everything you're trying to do as you continually improve. So there's a clear direction about what org should do. And the idea is to think about these behavior science things as not just a, a tool or a set of tools, but a lens by which to see what it is that you're doing. So you have design thinkers and behavioral insight thinkers, and, and they end up being uh, more diffused across your organization and not just a group of nudge unit experts. So now our listeners have have really hopefully heard an amazing summary of you know that the third version. But don't don't tune out because we we have some some things to discuss, right? Excellent. So let's let's talk about the the manifesto. Uh, when you had first brought this up to me, I was like, wait a second. You know, uh, I'm familiar with a few manifestos in my life, and um, most of them involve danger and people that get arrested. <laughs> but this was not your. This was not you labeling this uh, um, idea or article as a manifesto. In fact, I'm looking at this manifesto right now, and it's really just an article in Nature Human Behavior. Uh, and it's entitled, A Manifesto for Applying Behavioral Science. 
And so the author, Michael Halsworth, also thinks it's a uh, thinks of it as a manifesto. And and basically, it's it seems to be a, kind of a criticism of, as you mentioned, hey, looking at behavioral science in a, in a superficial way and um, kind of getting quick wins and, and getting a sugar high that boy, I can get any problem that I want to solve. I just need to make it just to push people in in the right direction or acknowledge and understand how they how they think about things and every human will do everything that uh, someone wants them to do. Maybe it's what they want to do. Maybe it's what the government wants to do. Maybe it's what their physician wants them to do. And that seems to be overblown, right? Am I, do I have that right? Yeah, there's, there's, so many, there's some, some amazing things about this manifesto. For those who kind of been watching behavior science and, uh, for a while, I think you know, it's been met uh, with a lot of, a lot of positive you know, feedback one of the things I love about it is that it does take into account what the critics have said. And, you know, not that, uh, that I've listened to all the critics, but I, one, I was going to mention one critic that I, uh, that I thought was worth talking about, and that is uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. I've got one of his books here that a lot of people have read, Skin in the Game. And in this book, he, you look uh, in the back, you'll find that there's actually several places where he mentions uh, the, the Nudge authors, Thaler and Sunstein, and, and he you know, has some some criticisms there. But Mr. Taleb, obviously he's not on our podcast and he can't speak for himself. But if I were to venture to guess, you know, what what his main beef was. And and by the way, kind of famously on Twitter, he he called, you know, the Nobel Prize winner Richard Thaler, nudge boy. And in this book he even calls him a creepy interventionalist and and so uh First of all, you're going to get Mr. Taleb's ire if if you talk anything about you know risk taking because he's an options trader. He knows all about the the science and the mathematics of risk. And in the world of behavior science, people, uh, including Thaler, had had talked about uh, a set of biases that kind of people tend to have. One of them being loss aversion, and that has to do with risk. So if you if you mention loss aversion and you label it as you know a bias and and then you start prescribing that maybe people should not be following that bias then you're going to catch the ire of Mr. Taleb absolutely 100%. So he was one of the uh critics. Now one of the things that the manifesto suggests beautifully is that we actually s- s- kind of stop talking so much about these human biases and just focus in on just the fact that people do respond differently to some of these interventions and nudges in different ways. So talk more about what is versus what ought when it comes to these biases, because it it honestly is, it's interesting, but it's it's not necessary in order to start applying what we're finding in the lab to the workplace. So I hope that makes sense. So in other words, if you you have a book, you know, you shouldn't spend too much time talking about the human biases. Now, I'll give you credit because you have uh, only one page devoted to listing out all these biases. So I have it here. You have a list of biases. You only you only devoted one page, which really I think- that's my favorite page. That's my favorite page of the whole book, and and you're you're not happy. So you want to take that one. You'll want to take that one out immediately. No, but but I loved how you only you know only devoted one page, and I think that's fine. One page is good. Now, had you done an entire chapter on it, I would say, look, Craig, we need to do a total rewrite of this thing because it's pre-manifesto. 
but it was, it was one page and that that's fine. And it was really just sort of a side note and, and we're, we're still good. All right. Awesome. So, uh, you know, uh, distilling that, that message down, uh, to, Hey, it's actually not that simple. And, um, uh, that, uh, that's the first thing I've heard. And, and, and the second thing is the idea of a, of a nudge unit again, great idea when it started, but what would be better yet is no nudge unit. Just everyone understands the concepts and the goals of the nudge unit and instill that in everything that they do from designing a new building to, you know, figuring out how patients can uh, schedule to uh, ensuring that workflows that nurses have to follow in the hospital uh, uh, make sense and, and make it easy to do what they want to do uh, to help both themselves and the patients. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And in fact, that uh, article and the manifesto has has a uh, a map in it, and in it, what it does is it describes the journey of an organization. An organization may start out having no emphasis on applying the nudge lens, you know, to the various challenges, and then it may start on a journey where uh, maybe there's some entrepreneurs that pop up within the organization that do, uh, you know, know about some of these things. They start doing it entrepreneurially, and then the organization might start looking for you know, outside help consultants, you know, who may do it, but, but maybe there's no expertise in the organization. And then maybe from there, there's some, now there's some expertise in the organization, but they're sort of, uh, like they're a nudge unit. So they're a, they're a group and then everybody comes to them and, and, but it's really the group's job to understand this stuff. And then finally you arrive at, at what we hope is, is it's more infused without, within the organization. So if your organization is, is a T and behavioral insights is say chamomile, then then the tea is now infused with the chamomile, and and now it's a better tea. Wow, I wasn't going to go there, but um, that uh, now I'm thirsty, and I'm I'm not sure if that was your intent, but let's talk about something else that that um, that you found uh, that resonated um, from I think the conference and and from the book, which is stupidity. Now, this is, uh, I have a particular, as I referenced earlier, I have a particular expertise in this area. But, you know, you had mentioned to me that um, you're aware of people uh, with strong uh, English accents who um, study stupidity. And um, I was fascinated by the strong English accents because as an American, I assume if someone says something with a strong English accent, they're generally um, smarter than me, which I, I think maybe you were implying. So, so what what is it about um, about stupidity and how does one how does one study that? Yeah. So first of all, I mean, who knew that stupidity is is a proper uh, you know topic of scientific inquiry, right? And I didn't know that, but I, I was listening to uh, a Sam Harris podcast and he had David Krakauer, who you know has a British accent, and and he said you know I study stupidity. And it made me laugh. I don't know why, but you know, he's a scientist and he studies stu- stupidity because it really begs the question: How could there be stupidity when, when typically, you know, when when we have evolutionary forces on us, we we thrive or not, you know, based on how well we're doing? How could there be all this stupidity all over the place? Now, the thing I, I would say first of all that we should say in, at the outset is is that we're not really talking about stupidity on a personal level level we're not talking about stupid people we're talking about stupidity in the systems and processes 
where these processes start off with the best of intentions, right? It, it hopes to guide people. And let's say, you know, you build an EMR and with the best of intentions, you, you hope it's going to help clinicians do the right things and stay out of the way. But you find that instead, you know, it's creating burnout because it's, it's such a burden to use and, and they're all the wrong things are in the wrong places and it's causing, you know, too much overhead and stuff like this. So how, how could that possibly happen? So one, I, th- I think it's it's kind of fascinating that stupidity is is a subject of science. You mentioned stupidity in the book, and I thought that was brilliant because there is a lot of stupidity in the systems and processes that are that are in healthcare. And what would be even more stupid is to not do something about it, right? And I think you had keyed in on some great research that had been done uh, by a group of people who found and and discovered that you you could even on a yearly basis just decide that you're going to find some of the stupidity and cut down on it right and, and you have great examples uh, from the book right and that you know we say research it was an article um, in the New England Journal of Medicine which apparently is a, a journal that is uh, well respected I guess <laughs> uh, where uh, it was it, the title was getting rid of stupid stuff and it was basically the chief medical information officer at Hawaii Pacific Health who said, Hey, we did this crazy, innovative thing. We asked people for specific examples of stupid stuff, uh, and I think that's their term, um, but I agree with it, um, in our electronic health record, right? And and, um, people were a little hesitant to kind of come up with some of those examples, even though they they had them. Uh, One, they thought they might get in trouble for speaking out, and maybe that that wasn't cool with the culture. And two, though, uh, more specifically, yeah, I've told people before, nothing happens, and and why would I go to the trouble of identifying this for you if you're not actually going to do something? And so, you know, that was the key. It was one. It was kind of a almost like a patient safety culture. Like, no, it's your job to tell us when you find stupid stuff, and even if it's minor, it, it's still kind of destroying your psyche. <laughs> um, that every day you have to you have to answer these questions that are relevant for a newborn, but not so much for a six-month-old who's now coming in for um, a different kind of a problem. And it just kind of um, uh, potentially lowers your IQ just a little bit every time you have to do it. And so, I, yeah, I think getting rid of stupid stuff is, is, um, is underrated and it's an, it's an easy win. Um, but I've never, I've never really considered kind of studying stupidity um, but it it makes sense as as you know something to try to understand. Well, oftentimes, as I think you referenced, it, it maybe it wasn't stupid when we did it, right? Um, when when we uh, were implementing this technology or creating this workflow or building this building, like everyone knew it had to be this way. And um, uh, looking back on it now, we're like, well, maybe that wasn't a great a decision, but it actually might have been at the time based on. And uh, what they knew, and and what they were doing, and the regulations that they had to deal with, and the the level of um, you know where science was. Absolutely. So you know, don't let's not point fingers, but let's go now that we have you know the benefit of of hindsight for the things that have been built. Let's go back, and then by the way, as we think about building new things, you know, there's there's ways we can approach that, and I and I think that's where again we can kind of tie back to this concept of designing for health that the, the concept is of designing is, is taking a humble, thoughtful, deliberate approach to understanding the problems we're trying to solve and then make sure we're matching those up with 
with solutions that are on target for solving those problems, right? And and that's where this design thinking really marries up quite nicely with with the with the concept, right? Of uh, well, well, let's not perpetuate stupidity in our systems. Let's let's use design principles to uh, lead lead to better solutions, right? Yeah, ag- agreed. And and oftentimes, um, you know, bad decisions are made uh, because we actually don't at the very beginning figure out what are we trying to do, right? We think we know what we're trying to do. Uh, we're recreating that paper form uh, on, on the com- in the computer. Um, but if we were actually thinking about, wait, why do we have that paper form? What, you know, what information is it collecting? Is it already available? Um, you know, kind of going back to the very beginning, it, it will decrease the, um, the, the, the stupidity and then the, the pain that's associated with the stupidity. Yeah, absolutely. Now, okay, so, so the system has stupidity in it and we can go back and thoughtfully uh, figure out how to address that. However, um, maybe that's a good segue to a, a similar point in your book uh, that you mentioned, and that is pain, right? There's stupidity and there's also pain. There's pain points, right? And and the pain points are, wait, uh, you know, some of the indicator, if you find a pain point, then then there's a little arrow to it. Maybe this is an area that we need to think about uh, in our continuous improvement. Maybe we ought to look here. Where does it hurt? Where are the pain points? Uh, but, but you know, it isn't a free-for-all. And in fact, a lot of organizations will struggle to eradicate stupidity and, and do something about those pain points uh, because making a change is also a little bit of a painful process. Uh, and so one of the comments I, I made, you know, that in our earlier discussion is that if you looked at a, a let's say, a, a little graph that said, you know, over, you know, have it over time. And, and then, you know, you have the kind of impact that would be made and, you know, the pain that, that you're going through, you would find that there's what, what some might call a J curve. In other words, as you start a path of improvement, sometimes the pain actually increases and, and you have a, a J curve where you're, you're going to go through a period of pain before you get out of that and, and then start a trajectory upward with less pain and, and more effectiveness because uh, change itself is difficult and a little bit painful as well. And, and in that trough of the J curve is where a lot of organizations struggle. And, and that's where design thinkers and the behavior science lens and, and consultancies and, and other people can help an organization get past that J curve that cause so many organizations to either go back to the way things were or to stagnate from there. I've, uh, I've seen that in the work that I do. There was, there was this uh, big continuous improvement initiative that, that led to uh, a process workflow to change. Uh, halfway through, you could say, uh, that transformation, the group of people who were impacted by a, a set of additional uh, milestones, you could say, came back and said, you know, um, this is, this is causing extra work for us. And, and we'd like to go back to the way things were. And, and what we said though, is, you know, the reason why we got on this journey in the first place is because there was a lack of transparency and our chief operating officer, uh, you know, had a lack of confidence that, that we were steering things in the right direction. So, so sometimes you have to remind the people who, who have to undergo the change, the pain that, uh, that caused us to 
do this transformation in the first place, right? And once they were reminded of the stupidity and the pain that we were leaving behind, they they realized that, yeah, you know what? We should continue this this journey. So we did continue the journey and it turns out that adding additional um, milestones and visibility did in- increase the confidence and the effectiveness with the chief operating officer and and we ended up in a much better place. So I've I've seen that that play out. So in other words, I guess the point is that it's it's not easy. So it's it might be easy to uh, find you know the organizational system stupidity and maybe find the pain points, but doing something about it is a little bit more challenging. Uh, and I and I think that J J curve at least for me is a nice illustration of that. Yeah, the um the I think one uh, one group calls it that the trough of, of disillusionment. Um, and, and, um, you know, I don't know anything about that because, um, I, I often work with physicians. They love change. They love it and they can't get enough of it. And, um, I'm being a little bit sarcastic. And so, yeah, I, you know, I think one way, uh, that organizations can help with that is to identify it ahead of time, right. And tell your, your chief clinical officer uh, or your, your, um, you know, your, your executives, Hey, uh, in the long run, which is maybe three months from now, this is going to be great. Uh, but for the next two or three months, this is going to be horrible. And people are going to come to you and they're going to corner you in the elevator and in, in the parking structure and tell you about how painful it is to change like this. And can't we just go back? And that's a, a short-term gain uh, for sure. If you go back and it'll be easier, but you're not going to get that long-term fix. And Another effective way I've seen of, of dealing with that is um, talking about the cell phone, right? Like I have an app. It's great. I love this app. And uh, I wake up uh, one morning and the app looks different. And it's not completely different, but I don't know how to do what I normally do. And I have to like, where's my button? The button's gone and, and I hate it and it's horrible. And I'm contemplating getting rid of the app, but uh, that takes some more effort because I have to find another app to replace it and do the same thing. And and uh, two weeks later, if someone comes to me and says, "Hey, uh, heard you didn't like the changes we made for the app. Do you want to go back?" Uh, almost always, my answer is, "I don't even know what you're talking about. It's been two or three weeks. Uh, I figured it out. My wiring, uh, my muscle memory has you know been been redeveloped, and uh, I just needed a little bit of time to kind of get over my hatred. And then it, it's much better now. So." That's one thing um, I think that people can kind of, they're like, yeah, I guess you're right. Uh, this is one of the few instances where I've been, I've been right uh, before. So I, I, I'm excited about that. But yeah, the, it's, it, the change is, is change management is really essential and, and continuous improvement can't happen unless you're managing that change and making sure that people are uh, understanding it, explaining that, that J-curve and that trough of disillusionment. Um, so that people uh, are not shocked when they're like, wait, I hate this. And like, wait, we told you you were gonna. Uh, but we all agreed that the outcome is going to be great at the end. So uh, remembering, yeah, remembering that the, the end result helps get you there. So if you recall, uh, kind of going back to you and I, uh, for whatever reason, felt compelled to go not only to this specialized symposium, but the pre-symposium session on clinical decision support, you were just talking about cell phones uh, and think about an electronic medical record where physicians are spending so much of their time, right? So this pre-conference session was dedicated to 
thinking about and actually practicing having uh, like having some practice sessions on, hey, there's there's some challenges faced by this healthcare organization, and this organization is contemplating some changes to the electronic medical record in in response to some some pressures uh, from uh, coming from regulatory pressures. A uh, physician should be uh, doing some new things. And so you might want to enshrine that in some of your workflows that are in the EMR, for instance. So you and I were in this room where a bunch of people were going to try try this out. Um, so what we were given these really cool handouts. One of them was, if you recall, the five rights of clinical decision support. And then there was this other one, the 10 commandments for effective clinical decision support, right? 10 commandments, the five rights. And we quickly looked over that, and then we we picked a challenge or a problem, and then and then we were given uh, just a very short period of time to get with some some people in the room ha- who happened to join our our different tables, and and then we did that. And if you recall, at the very end of of that whole session, Kit Delgato, who's who heads up uh, Penn's Nudge Unit today, right? He, he did mention that in addition to the, the Ten Commandments and the Five Rights, we, we do need to also consider uh, the change management principles. And that was something that I, I highlighted in my notes is you're absolutely right. Like no matter what you're going to do, if you're going to implement changes, you're going to have to think about change management as well. But I mentioned uh, the clinical decision support example the Ten Commandments and the Five Rights, because those were uh, adapted from from research that had been done previously, and and I thought they were brilliant, and and I was able to take them back to my work and what I do, and actually apply those directly to a project that I was working on. Uh, I was working on uh, ways to simplify and improve all of the workflow processes that go into uh, managing projects for uh, very complex projects in the area of market research uh, studies that have that also you know usually have a component of a survey that would go out to people over mail internet phone etc these are very complex projects and we were improving the project workflows so I I came I adapted to these and, and came up with ten guidelines of uh, the, the ten commandments or guidelines of operational workflow design and and the five rights of operational workflow design and I found that I was able to make that adaptation and and come up with uh, really great principles that I could apply these types of efforts of improving workflows and doing design work where the design work is impacting internally within the organization in addition to thinking about how things are designed for end users and and customers. So I loved it. I don't know if you took your sheet away, but if you recall, there was the five rights, right? And those, those were the right information given to the right person at the right time through the right channels and in the right format, right? So brilliant yeah it, it it is it's simple and and brilliant and um and i'm glad that you were able to kind of uh take those and, and co-opt them and, and modify them it, you know similar to the five rights for uh drug delivery just uh to make sure that you give the right medication to the right patient via the right uh route at the right time 
in the right format. So we are running short on time. Any concluding thoughts or um, concepts that you wanted to address? Buy the book. I know we're not here to explicitly you know, promote the book, but I, I loved it. I, I thought the universe needs this book. I think we need to apply design principles. One of the big takeaways of, of that, that great conference that happened only a month and a half ago, we're still, you know, in, in the, uh, in the, you know, afterglow of, of that amazing conference. One of the big takeaways for me is, is this very, very enthusiastic, uh, suggestion to uh, apply design thinking to the behavior science lens and marry those uh, those principles together and diffuse that in, into more people. And, and if you can just diffuse some of that into me, I'm a pretty simple person, then, then I think that's a, a great indication that more organizations can infuse it throughout their organizations. Awesome. Well, that is a great way to end. I, I thank you. It's been a pleasure. And uh... I look forward to continuing the conversation at the next Nudge Conference. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. To learn more about the manifesto and presentations we talked about, check the link in this episode's show notes. Check back for more episodes of Designing for Health wherever you listen to podcasts or on nordicglobal.com. Till next time, we'll see you in network. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. This helps others find the podcast as well. 